0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleepnumber stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: In its vastness, geometry, and abundance of marble, Washington's National Mall is America's forum, a place to stir the heart of citizens and leave visitors in no doubt that they're treading on hallowed territory. By contrast, the Oval Office, at least since Joe Biden moved in, is more like a family shrine. The new president has decorated it with devotional art that reflects America's polytheism. There are portraits of three founding fathers, Hamilton, Jefferson and Franklin. The progressive saints Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks and Cesar Chavez will get busts. A piece of rock brought back from the moon completes the reliquary. Surveying all this is the democratic Jupiter. Franklin D. Roosevelt's portrait stares back at the current occupant of the famous Resolute Desk from above the hearth. Roosevelt set the standard for what a president could achieve in his first hundred days and how he might go on to transform a country. Might Joe Biden himself join the pantheon of the greats? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how well has President Biden done in his first 100 days? Joe Biden is acutely aware of the 100 days test. He's consulted historians on how FDR began transforming America in his first months as president, and he's set his own frenetic pace. But public support for Biden falls short of previous presidents, and he faces tough trade offs to get things done. Can this presidency be a transformational one? In this episode, we'll audit Biden's achievements so far, dig into the latest polling and hear from historian Neil Ferguson, who says presidents learned the wrong lessons from those who came before them. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the US Digital Editor. John, Charlotte, it was
2: birthday week this week. How was it for you? Uh, It was lovely. We actually went to a restaurant for the first time in about 15 months. We sat outside. Um, It almost felt normal. It was great. It's a birthday week for all of us, I should say. How was yours?
1: Yeah, we made this discovery last year when recording the podcast at this time of the year that Charlotte and I share a birthday, and John was born a day before us. My birthday fell on the Wednesday. Your birthday
0: looked so sad. (laughs) It looked... John Prudhoe sent us a picture of his lunch on his birthday, and it was like... I can't describe it as bread nor a cracker. It just looked like a sad piece of starch accompanied by something out of a dark jar, which was a substance I'd never seen before. It was like
2: an. It was like if Edward Hopper did food photography, that's what it would be. Exactly. I get so
1: fed up with people sharing images of their glamorous lives on social media that I think a good antidote to that is to take a picture of what life is really like. And in my case, my birthday lunch was a slice of bread, some cheese, and some Branston pickle, which as Charlotte pointed out for American listeners is basically a kind of jam made out of pickles that's that's popular <laughs> in the UK. So it wasn't it wasn't very glamorous. It was press day at the Economist. Wednesdays are always really busy, uh, and I was largely tethered to my desk. But I had a I had a nice time in the evening. So it was good. How about you, Charlotte? What did you get up to on our shared birthday?
0: Um, the usual work. Um, Spent some time with my children. The I was thinking about birthday presents that one receives at this phase of life, and we received a something that lets you open a bottle of wine without really opening it, so you can have a tiny bit and then preserve the bottle of wine, which is actually immensely useful for us and very welcome, but is also a bit like being eulogized before you're dead, Basically, the people who've given you this have said, we've completely given up on you as fun-having individuals, so here's this contraption that will let you have an ounce of wine each evening.
1: Yeah, that's an incredibly sensible gift, isn't it?
2: Yeah, my most exciting present was a a pot with a steamer insert so I could make more healthy food. It's sad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, while we're steaming vegetables, Joe Biden is trying to transform America, By my calculation, Joe Biden, who first ran for president in 1988, has spent more than 10,000 days preparing for his first 100 days in office. Has the preparation paid off? The Economist Washington correspondent, Idris Colun, has written a detailed assessment of how Biden is faring for this week's paper.
3: When Joe Biden gave his speech to Congress on the eve of his 100th day in office, he sounded, I think, pretty triumphalist. He is proud of the fact that the administration has gotten more than 200 million jabs into the arms of Americans. That was more than he had promised. He promised 100 million in his first hundred days. And he's also proud of the forecast for economic growth. He touted the fact that 1.3 million new jobs have been created. Of course, those are things that uh, I think probably Donald Trump could have pointed to as well if he had won the election. But he had another accomplishment, which was the passage of his one. Point nine dollars covid 19 trillion relief bill, which he called the American Rescue Plan. It did a bunch of things, $1,400 checks are the things that he touted, as well as a uh, expanded child tax credit that is supposed to cut uh, child poverty in half. So all in all, he, he sounded fairly happy with what he had accomplished in the first 100 days. And he also sounded, I think, fairly economic populist.
1: Yeah. And the word jobs came up again and again. He kept talking about jobs, rather than you know veering off into territory that might be more controversial in a, in a country riven by culture wars. He's done a lot in his first 100 days, and he's made all sorts of proposals about what he wants to do next. Can you just pick out a few things that are particularly striking or, or, or interesting to you?
3: Yeah, so Biden has unveiled another $4 trillion of spending that he would like to do over the next decade. The American Jobs Plan, as you might guess, uh, aims to create, in his words, millions of jobs by employing Americans to build traditional infrastructure and in the roads and bridges and power lines sense, and uh, also to employ lots of Americans to rapidly decarbonize the country. He sees climate policy as jobs policy, and he emphasized that repeatedly throughout his speech to Congress and uh, in the families plan, he's he's proposing a $2 trillion reweaving of the safety net in America. He's proposing paid family leave for the first time, for example, and subsidies for childcare. Those are both fairly ambitious proposals that I think more than the COVID-19 bill are going to define how effective his presidency actually ends up being.
1: Yeah, so as you say, a lot of proposals for new spending. I think if you add them up, the total comes to an additional $6 trillion or so numbers that big are quite hard to get your head around. So can you give us some comparisons?
3: So Biden has already spent about 10% or thereabouts of GDP within his first 100 days. And that is more than uh, Franklin Roosevelt spent in his 100 days. And he's proposed, as you said, another $4 trillion, which will be spent um, over the next decade. It's more probably than, as I mentioned, Roosevelt and probably any other president in, in modern American history. Um, What's interesting is that I don't think that the amount of spending actually is all that correlated with the amount of change. Obviously, it's significant, but uh, the two trillion that was spent did not create, you know, a wholesale new governmental program like Medicare or Medicaid, something that lasts. It was, you know, transmitted in the form of checks to families and in the form of aid to states and, and localities. It will not have the sort of lasting impact that Biden is contemplating. The other four trillion of his of his agenda will.
1: It seems, in a way, we've swapped a kind of right-wing populism, populist nationalism for a left-wing version built around Joe Biden's big spending. There are lots of things to like about his spending plans, particularly on decarbonization. We've also praised the child tax credit in our Leader pages. What are the downsides of this left populist approach to spending so much money?
3: So one thing that economists have started to worry about is given how quickly the, the economy has been Recovering is that by spending already 10% of GDP and possibly more down the line, that you risk the economy overheating, resulting in a sort of self-made economic shock. And if if some if some calamity like that questions his stewardship, I think that it could present problems for him uh, down the line. The second um, is that it's very easy to get caught up in throwing hundreds of billions of dollars around and sometimes not worry about the efficiency of of the spending. There's a democratic tendency sometimes where uh, you know wherever there's a market failure of sorts, think higher education or healthcare or whatnot, that uh, the solution that often people go for is to say, well, we'll have the federal government cover the rest. And if you don't control prices, you know that's a recipe for the check growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's certainly happened in education. I think you can. Uh, it's hard for me to to imagine that it hasn't happened in healthcare. Um, and you could see it happening in, in, a, in a thing like childcare, for example, where Biden has laid out a proposal to uh, subsidize childcare so that no family, no middle class family pays more than 7 percent of their earnings. And in a high cost place like New York and, and D.C. and San Francisco, that, that would mean the federal government paying upper middle class families, you know, possibly nine to ten thousand dollars per kid if they go too far. And, you know, these become potent attack lines um, that could damage the president in, in the midterms. And if he loses control of Congress. In the midterms, obviously, I think that's the end of his legislative agenda altogether.
1: Charlotte, what have you made of Biden's fast start?
0: Well, I have a lot to say about different specific aspects of what Biden has proposed, because there have been so many proposals But I do think it's helpful just to remember that every president comes into office articulating a vision for what America is, what America can be, and what role government should play. And George Bush had compassionate conservatism, and his president ended up being really defined by 9-11 and his exploits abroad, with American democracy under threat from terrorism and extremism. And he had this evangelical idea of spreading democracy overseas, then you had Obama, who articulated a vision of not red America or blue America, but one America. And of course, he had his big healthcare care bill, but was sort of hemmed in. Trump talked about making America great again, a, a sort of an older, whiter, more homogenous, more insular America, both economically and culturally. And what strikes me as interesting about Biden coming into office is that he talks about American democracy largely in competition with um, authoritarianism in China. And he talks about, he said in his speech, we have to prove democracy still works, that our government still works, and we can deliver for our people. And more than Bush, more than Clinton, more than Obama or Trump, Biden's vision of America is really grounded with a lot of concrete policy proposals. And uh, In some ways, I think that's a reaction to the challenges at hand, inequality, climate change, the rise of China as a competitive threat, and Biden's answer to those three big forces, those three big long-term challenges that America faces are a pretty ambitious expansion of what government can do. And I think the way that he's defined his mission as president is pretty interesting, both in the way that he defines democracy in contrast really to China and Chinese authoritarianism, and then the way that he plans to use sweeping policy to face these big challenges.
1: John, how about you? What have you made of Biden's beginning?
2: I think Charlotte is right in pointing out Biden's extraordinary ambition and his real groundedness. I thought that his speech last night was extremely well constructed in that There was really no soaring rhetoric, right? It was after the sort of the unpredictability of Donald Trump and the two different kinds of evangelicalism of George Bush and Barack Obama, the fact they both tended to reach for soaring ideals-based rhetoric. Biden's speech was extremely grounded in policy. It did grow at the end to a defense of democracy, but that is hardly or that has hardly been in the past and should not be a real partisan issue. And so I think the interesting question about his presidency, to me, is whether it resets American expectations of government. He is campaigning on an expansion of government and an effectiveness of government that we really haven't seen liberals embrace since Roosevelt, because Reagan sort of reset the terms of that conversation, and every subsequent president— was playing on the board that he set. I think Biden is attempting to reset that board, reset the conversation, and sort of make people more comfortable with a much more activist government. Now, that may sound alarming to Americans, but I think that what he's actually proposing is basically the standard of living, the standard of care, the standard of government that other rich democracies have. So it's not so extraordinary, but it is a resetting of of a conversation and expectations around government in America. All right, thank you both. We'll go into a bit more detail on some of the proposals
1: in a moment. But first, the usual reminder that now's a good time to subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. There are thoughtful pieces on long COVID and also on how to tax capital, plus a great story in the US pages about the rights and wrongs of a high school cheerleader's sweary rant that's made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Few presidencies get very far before unforeseen events intervene and push them on a different path. The Stanford historian Neil Ferguson has written a new book about the politics of catastrophe. He's been speaking to Idris and offered a contrasting view to some of the boosterism surrounding the Biden administration.
4: Well, I don't buy the story that this is the reincarnation of Franklin Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson. And the reason that I'm skeptical about this claim is that it exaggerates the power that Joe Biden has in Congress. One has to remember that after Lyndon Johnson's landslide in 1964, The Democrats had 68 Senate seats and 295 House seats compared with 50 today in the Senate, 219 in the House. These are slim congressional margins by historical standards. Do you think that
3: the success that they had on the COVID-19 relief bill, was at all replicable? Or do you think that
4: he's going to hit the limits of his congressional power soon? I think it's worth noting that whatever his intentions, uh, all presidents face what Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, famously called events, dear boy. And events are unfolding uh, rapidly. With respect to immigration, the obvious signals that the administration sent that it was going to be a great deal easier on illegal immigration have led to a significant influx of People, including many unaccompanied minors across the southern border, that's going to become a serious problem. I think there is a crime wave in uh, American cities that got going during last summer's protests that is going to become more and more uh, of a headache for them. And I'd also add that the administration's tendency uh, to signal in all kinds of ways its sympathy with woke progressivism will also I think generate some uh, backlash because there's a growing dissatisfaction with the posturing uh, and ideological agenda of a great many educational institutions. Those are a few of the issues that that spring to mind and I haven't even got to foreign policy where I think the biggest biggest traps uh, are already visible. Those traps being Taiwan or others as well? Well, Taiwan is one. One of the things that struck me when people started saying he's the next Franklin Roosevelt, he's the next Lyndon Johnson, was how those presidencies began with bold domestic agendas, but then ended up in major wars. And they weren't the only democratic presidents to suffer that fate when you think about it. It was the same problem that uh, Woodrow Wilson Experienced. Harry Truman had this problem too. And in some ways, John F. Kennedy's presidency was very nearly derailed very early on by a foreign policy crisis over Cuba. So I think next year, I don't think it will be this year, I think next year there'll be a major crisis, maybe a Taiwan Strait crisis that will be a huge test of the Biden administration. And we'll see if it's just one of history's little jokes. That the uh, Secretary of State's uh, name includes the word blink.
3: I've been reading, as maybe you have, that Biden's been regularly consulting uh, some historians. And uh, I wondered if you were called into the White House and you had a chance to offer uh,
4: one historical anecdote, what story might you want to uh, convey? I would say the United States must stop learning only from its own history. Uh, This has been a long-standing pathology, if it learns from any history, it learns from its own. And telling uh, presidents in the 21st century, you can be Johnson, you can be uh, Roosevelt, um, isn't that much more sensible than it was when Steve Bannon told Donald Trump he could be Andrew Jackson, which probably came as something of a surprise to Trump, who I suspect had never heard of Andrew Jackson. In truth, the situation of the United States in this century is so different from its situation in the 19th and 20th centuries that you can only learn, I think, delusional lessons. I think if you look at the position of the United States today, it's much more like the position of mid-20th century Britain. It is uh, overextended. It has commitments all over the world, uh, a vast defense establishment, uh, a a public debt that has reached unprecedented heights in relation uh, to the economy, a currency that uh, is the international reserve currency, but is not without its its challenges, particularly given policies last year. So beware a Suez crisis would be my advice uh, to Joe Biden. You don't want to end up thinking you were Lyndon Johnson and ending up being Anthony Eden, a crisis over Taiwan in a midterm election year, if China were suddenly to make a move against that island, would present the Biden administration with a terrible dilemma. Because the only way the US could respond would have to include financial sanctions that would cause a huge upheaval in the global financial system with all kinds of economic consequences that would be adverse for uh, the uh, Democratic Party's prospects in the midterms. And I think that that would be lead to a, a decision not to escalate I struggle to imagine the Biden administration going to war over a Taiwan and I think that would be a Suez level moment uh, not only for American power but for the primacy of the US dollar and and much else besides so that would be the the dark warning that uh, that I would offer were I to be invited into the White House but that's not going to happen and in any case, When they invite historians into the White House, what they really want to hear is uh, how brilliantly they're doing and how they compare with the, the greatest presidents and will soon be headed to Mount Rushmore.
1: John, I think we should confine ourselves to domestic policy because we talked about foreign policy last week. And anyone who wants to read more about American policy with regards to Taiwan can go to economist.com or just open up their app and read our cover story, the headline of which is the most dangerous place in the world. So let's stick with the domestic stuff and perhaps begin where Idris and Neil Ferguson began. To me, the really striking thing about Biden's start is that he's managed to do so much, despite the fact that he has the slimmest congressional majority. There's a nice chart with Idris's piece this week, which shows you have to go back to Reagan to find the last time a president came into office without commanding majorities in the House and the Senate. So looking at those numbers, you might conclude that he wouldn't be able to do anything very much. But because of the way the Democrats have been pretty ruthless in using
2: reconciliation and ploughing ahead without getting any votes from Republicans... Biden's been able to do a lot. He has. And it's not just that he comes in with a slim majority, it's that the parties are far more ideologically polarized than they were when Reagan took office, and certainly when LBJ and FDR took office. You had a large contingent of conservative, mostly Southern Democrats, and liberal, mostly New England Republicans, socially liberal, I should say, mostly New England Republicans. Um, And so that permitted a degree of cross-party dealing that just seems impossible today. And so what that has left Democrats to fall back on is, as you say, the process of reconciliation, which is, of course, a parliamentary maneuver in the Senate that allows the passage of legislation with a principally budgetary impact with a simple majority rather than a filibuster-proof 60 votes. So that is how the COVID relief bill was passed. I suspect that as much as Joe Biden would like Republican support for the two parts of his infrastructure package, he's not going to get it, and so he'll pass that through reconciliation too. Now, that means he won't be able to do some things he wants to do. I don't think he'll be able to raise the federal minimum wage. I think voting rights is going to be a very difficult battle unless the Senate passes a rule that exempts voting rights bills from the filibuster the same way they have exempted judicial nominations. So that's the tool he has to use, and he has to be ruthless in using it because that sort of opportunity for cross-party support just isn't there. Those cross-party coalitions really don't exist anymore.
0: I was struck listening to Neil Ferguson at the idea that I think it's perfectly fine that presidents are interested in becoming the greatest president ever. These are people who are definitionally egomaniacs. To want to become president requires a very particular type of person. And so the idea that you want to be one of the best in history at it strikes me as completely in keeping with the ambition to be president, period. And so I think the question for Biden is, he clearly has internalized some of the lessons of Barack Obama, with whom he worked, obviously, very closely as part of that administration. And then looking at at some of the prior presidents who he holds up as examples, FDR was, of course, operating in a very, very different environment, both in terms of the country's political polarization and the scale of the crisis facing America was arguably more severe, of course, than what Biden has had to face with COVID. But, you know, some of the things that happened when FDR first took office really stuck around for decades. So if you think about the regulation of the financial sector, both the creation of the FDIC, the Glass-Steagall Act, the Glass-Steagall Act wasn't repealed until 1999, the main tenants of it. So you can look at FDR's record and think about the things that are done quickly and how lasting they can be. And I think that that's a relevant lesson for Biden.
2: Uh, I think Charlotte's point about Glass-Steagall is well taken. Uh, Legislation does not have to take a long time to be passed to be lasting. And I think once a program is enacted, it's much harder to withdraw. I know that everyone is tempted to compare Biden to FDR and LBJ, but it's important to remember just how different the operating environments are for those three presidents. FDR came into office facing an enormous economic crisis. The crisis that Biden faces is much more existential, right? You've got one of the two major political parties that appears to be in the process of turning its back on democracy. On the one hand, that makes it possible for him to speak up in defense of democracy, which ordinarily would be a sort of anodyne table stakes sentiment for a president to have. But on the other, that's not something that you can really legislate, right? And if you have a policy and legislative agenda, that's not really something that can be addressed in that manner. So he does have a wide open, what has traditionally been the center in that sense. Um, But the task ahead of him is much, much harder from a legislative perspective, I think.
1: Do you think Biden comes in at a moment of more existential crisis than FDR? I mean, I would have thought that coming in to office as FDR did when the depression was just getting going, was more of an existential crisis. I mean, Biden's quite lucky, isn't he, And that the economy is going to grow really fast this year and America's COVID-19 cases are falling. More than half of American adults have had at least one jab now. I mean, in some ways he's in the opposite position of FDR, isn't he?
0: I would think I agree with you, John Prito, in that the nature of the challenge is very different. The nature of the challenge that FDR faced, I would argue, was a much more unifying problem. The problem that Biden faces is one that is of long-term challenges, including inequality, climate, China, and long-running political polarization that is due to many factors, but there's a huge divide about what or whether the government should do anything about those three big challenges that I just listed. And so I think that America was at a point of more acute crisis, clearly, when FDR took office, but there was also an ability, because of the nature of the acute crisis, to get some stuff done. And Biden comes in with some sort of long term, more simmering crises that coincide with a complete collapse in America's functional government, in my mind, an ability of parties to work together and for the system to generate outcomes that are positive for the American people. So it's it's just a very different nature of crisis and a different tenor of conversation in Washington.
1: All right, thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to hear what the polling data says about Biden's chances of living up to his hero. An emerging theme of the Biden presidency so far has been the striking contrast between the vastness of his ambition and the cramped political space he has to operate in. To get a clearer picture of that space, I've been speaking to The Economist's data journalist, Elliot Morris.
5: Joe Biden heads into his 100-day mark with a middling approval rating. He has a 50% approval rating in this week's Economist YouGov survey. That's the same approval rating he has in the average of the last months. And that's lower than Barack Obama's approval rating at this point in his presidency, which was 55% in YouGov's data, but much higher than Donald Trump's. Uh, His approval rating was only 40%, and he was net unpopular, whereas Biden and Obama are both net popular. So
1: is it fair to say that as America grows more and more partisan, presidents starting approval ratings are just trending down? Donald Trump was particularly low, but Joe Biden's is pretty low historically, right?
5: That's right. The starting approval rating decreases closer to 50-50 rather than, you know, 60-40 for some cases. And the honeymoon period for uh, the president also shrinks. You know, in uh, the 60s and 70s, there was this period when a president's net approval rating would drop by like 30 points over the first three or four months of their presidency. Uh, We've really only seen Joe Biden's move by two or three uh, as partisans, become locked in with their approval ratings for presidents based on their party, not based on what they're actually doing.
1: What puzzles me, Elliot, is that we have this overall trend of presidential approval rating going down. And as you say, Joe Biden starts out not terribly popular compared with previous presidents, a bit more popular than Trump, but unpopular compared with other presidents. At the same time, if you poll the things that Joe Biden's administration have actually done, and in particular, the big thing that they've done in the first hundred days, which was the enormous COVID stimulus. That policy is really popular and it gets support from quite a lot of Republicans. So how can those two things be true? How can Joe Biden's approval rating be hovering around 50-50, which is pretty low historically, and Americans approve of the things he's done?
5: Well, there's a huge disconnect in American politics between uh, one person's appetite for government spending, for social services, and their overall rating of a party and of their leader. Uh, We see in YouGov's data that about 64% of voters approved of that COVID stimulus bill, but only about a third of Republicans did. It could be that they're thinking about President Biden's stances on border security or gun control, which are, of course, salient issues as well. It's not 100 one hundred zero what the president and Congress are doing. People are taking a lot of other information to these approval ratings.
1: Elliot, if you go back to Joe Biden's inauguration, there was lots of rhetoric about bringing the nation together and being a healing president, all that kind of thing. The approval ratings suggest that isn't happening. Is it even
5: possible, do you think? If I had to bet, I I would bet against it. Americans are too polarized for an ambitious restructuring of the role of government in society to really change their opinion about parties or about leaders. Joe Biden could be a transformative president, the sort of FDR-esque figure in other ways and how he's expanding um, the social safety net or even the definition of infrastructure. But I wouldn't expect that to flow to his approval ratings either. Of course, this says more about the state of American politics today than it really says about Joe Biden.
1: Charlotte, those polling numbers that Elliot describes are a big reason why President Biden's in such a hurry. I mean, he has the slimmest possible majority in the Senate. It's 50-50 with Kamala Harris getting the casting vote. And then he has a really slim majority in the House of Representatives. And in 2022, in the midterms, both those majorities are going to be under threat. In the House, the results of the 2020 census, which is going to lead to reapportionment of congressional seats towards Texas and other places that are not particularly favorable for Democrats, means that Democrats will have an even tougher time than they normally would. The President's Party normally loses seats in the midterms etc. And if President Biden does lose his majorities there, his tactic of spending big through reconciliation goes out the window and his presidency is prematurely curtailed. So A, he's in a rush to get lots of stuff done before that might happen. And B, the hope, I think, is that by spending big now and into 2022 and up towards the midterms, he might be able to reverse the normal rule of American politics where president's parties lose power in the first midterms.
0: That's right. And the other thing that's interesting about Joe Biden and the way in which he's in a rush is that unlike most presidents, it's very clear that he just wants to serve for one term. And so when you think about, and we've chatted about this, but when you think about his, um, some of his unique powers, one of them is that he's incredibly boring, and the other is that he's old. And both of those in combination have the result of making him strangely able to pursue much bolder policies than he might if he were a young, dynamic person who captured the passions in a different way and who was also clearly seeking a second term. And so he's clearly just going for it very quickly at the start of his administration because it's obvious that this is his only shot.
2: Having just celebrated a birthday that puts me closer to 50 than 40, I'm very excited to hear there's a future for boring old men. Yeah, Jonathan Chait, who writes for New York magazine, has this nice line
1: about how with Biden, the tedium is the message, this idea that by being sort of low profile, not speaking too much and not being terribly exciting, he's able to get enormous amounts of public spending past Congress without apparently outraging Republican voters too much. But all of that said, Charlotte, America is in the grip of a long running culture war, set of culture wars over different issues. And it seems to me that Joe Biden can't hope to stay out of those indefinitely.
0: That's right. And it is obvious that he's going to have a hard time avoiding some of the culture wars that have been raging for years now. The other area that's of particular interest to me is what's happening with the Biden administration and some of his proposals for the private sector. There's a temptation to talk only about the expansion of government and to frame it in terms of government. But with that, comes a pretty different relationship between government and business. And if you look at two really big, important areas where he's devoted attention, one is the energy transition and climate, which we've discussed, which is mingled with green industrial policy. There's a lot of support for union labor, for domestic supply chains. And the second is how the tech landscape evolves. So if you look at his appointments, um, you have Tim Wu, who is a Columbia professor to the National Economic Council as an advisor on tech and competition, Tim Wu is a had been at Columbia a leading scholar in thinking about new ways to apply antitrust law to the tech giants. And Biden also nominated Lena Khan, who's another prominent critic of big tech, to the FTC. So if you take just those industries, clean energy and then big tech, you look at the top companies in America, you have Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook. Then if you also add in some of the biggest energy companies, Tesla, ExxonMobil, Chevron, I was looking at this the other day, that's just eight companies that collectively have 9.5 trillion in market value, which is roughly equivalent to the entire economy, is the entire GDP of Britain, Germany, and France combined. Just enormous, enormous companies that themselves are just a portion of the broader tech and energy space. And so if you think about how Biden might transform just those two sectors. And then you combine that with his proposals around corporate taxation and capital gains, and you have something that really adds up to quite a lot of change. And I think the temptation in assessing as a journalist, frankly, in assessing Biden's administration is to look at each individual policy proposal in isolation, because you have to do that, you have to try to make sense of each one. But the question is how all these things stack up because you can't have this enormous expansion in spending without some sort of increase in taxation, right? And so, you know, I think that that's the challenge for everyone in taking stock of the Biden presidency is trying to wrap your arms around this huge number of proposals, be it for the public sector or the private sector, and see what might get through and whether it will, in fact, transform America in the next few years.
2: Yeah, I think that the question of trade-offs is going to become more salient in his next several hundred days. He can't do everything, right? So where is he going to put his political capital next? My hunch is that he'll push for voting rights just because that is so fundamental, right? And I don't know if that is H.R. 1, which is sort of loaded up with a lot of extraneous stuff, or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would restore some of the protections that the Supreme Court took away in 2013, Maybe he'll do something on gun control that's politically much trickier, but he's going to have to pick some place to spend some of this political capital in the latter half of this year, and I'm curious to see which one it is. It's going to be really interesting
1: to see, isn't it? If I had a bet, it would be that he's just going to continue to talk about the economy and spending and jobs. He's on such safe ground there politically, and under cover of those things, he's able to make some quite radical, progressive changes, uh, both on racial equity and also on the environment. And I suspect that if he does enough of that, he'll be able to keep democratic activists happy enough to stick with him uh, into the midterms and beyond. First, though, as ever, before I let you go, there's a quiz. In May 2009, The Economist reported on Barack Obama's popularity after 100 days in office. Polls showed his most admired qualities to be his intelligence and wholesome family. Voters also found him remarkably free of personal vices, we wrote, except for one. What was Barack Obama's only known vice? Smoking. Smoking. Both correct. Donald Trump didn't smoke or drink, of course. The heaviest smokers to occupy the Oval Office seem to have been FDR Eisenhower, and LBJ. But which president placed an order
2: for a thousand Cuban cigars? Truman? Eisenhower? Was it Kennedy? That would be hilarious.
0: I would have thought that... I mean, it could have been Kennedy, but...
2: It was,
1: in fact, President Kennedy who asked his aide and fellow cigar smoker, Pierre Salinger, to source a thousand petty upments in February 1962. Salinger told Cigar Aficionado magazine that it took him all day to find such an enormous stash. The president summoned him at eight the next morning to ask if he had succeeded. Once Salinger confirmed he had in fact requisitioned 1,200 cigars, Kennedy opened his desk and took out a long piece of paper, which he immediately signed. It was the executive order banning all Cuban products from the U.S. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with a slightly different kind of podcast. Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.